the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Happily had the uh, Monday uh, off with the President's Day. That was put very oddly, but you get the idea. It's about eight minutes after four o'clock. I want to um, point out that James Blind is producing today's program. I'm ready to close out the show. James Blind is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Today we'll talk with Phil Waldrup. He's the author of Beyond Betrayal, Overcome Past Hurts and Begin to Trust Again. It can be a real challenge when you have been deeply uh, betrayed, and we'll talk with him about that. It has, of course, to do with forgiveness and not allowing a root of bitterness and all of those related things. We'll talk with him also later in the program in the five o'clock hour, to be more precise. We're going to make an announcement about Gospel Sing Live 2020. So keep your ears open. That'll be in the uh, first part of the five o'clock hour today. Gospel Sing Live. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, a pair of uh, State Department chartered flights carrying Americans from the a coronavirus-infected Diamond Princess cruise ship arrived at uh, Travis Air Force Base on Monday and Lackland uh, Air Force Base in Texas as well. Hundreds of American passengers who had been quarantined on cruise ships left to Japan on Monday on the two planes en route to the United States after 14 of the passengers infected and isolated in a specialized containment area. The 46 Americans who tested positive on the cruise ship were able to remain in Japan to be treated for the virus that's killed an estimated 1,765 people and affected uh, 70,000 globally, according to Princess Cruise Media Relations. Buses had transported U.S. passengers with assistance from Japanese troops from a ship in um, an airport in Tokyo. And NASCAR officials postponed the Daytona 500 on Monday afternoon following a series of rain delays shortly after the president appeared at the race, told drivers to start their engines and rode a ceremonial parade lap in his presidential limousine, The Beast, on Sunday. The race resumed later in the afternoon. The postponement came after two lengthy delays, totaling over three hours. The first delay came moments after the president's motorcade completed a ceremonial parade lap around the two-and-a-half-mile track. More on that later. House Intelligence Committee ranking member Devin Nunez fired back at Democrats who criticized Attorney General William Barr for his role in the former uh, president's associate Roger Stone sentencing and defended the president's use of Twitter after he used the platform to comment about the ongoing criminal case. What's happening here with Barr, he says, I think people need to understand that he's cleaning up the mess from not only the Obama administration, but also the mess that was left with the Russia gate fiasco. Nunez speaking on Fox and Friends over the weekend. Nunez comments came days after Barr himself publicly swiped at the president, declaring on Thursday that the president's 
tweets about the Justice Department prosecutors and open cases make it impossible for him to do his job. And a federal court has struck down the president's, uh, or at least the administration's, common sense Medicaid work requirements. And a new details are emerging in uh, Representative Ilhan Omar's marriage scandal, only so because there seems to be a relationship with a member of her staff and misuse of funds. That's why it's of public interest. And disgraced lawyer Michael Avenatti has been found guilty in the Nike extortion trial. Sentencing will follow at some point. Uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio has endorsed Bernie Sanders for president. And socialist uh, Bernie Sanders is proposing a $4.35 trillion tax increase on wealth. Joe and Hunter Biden's China connections are under close scrutiny following much of the attention focused earlier during the impeachment hearing on what happened in Ukraine. And China has 70,000 plus cases, according to the World Health Organization, of the uh, the virus and uh, that uh, mission from the World Health Organization is now getting underway. Xi Jinping has shifted the blame as Beijing's um, uh, boasts of coronavirus crackdown and top health officials are warning of global pandemic as 40 Americans test positive on the cruise ship I mentioned earlier. Virginia lawmakers have rejected uh, an assault weapon ban and feds have released 375,000 illegal immigrants who entered with family members in fiscal year 2019. Justin Trudeau is facing backlash after shaking hands with and bowing to Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif, whose country downed planes, um, uh, downed plane rather, with 57 Canadians aboard, was brought to light. And Facebook's uh, Mark Zuckerberg is requesting a government rules on what discourse should be allowed or disallowed. And Kate Steinel's uh, killer, found incompetent to stand trial on gun charges, um, will uh, still remain held. As President Trump faces ongoing criticism for allegedly interfering in Roger Stone's case, the attorney general has confronted more calls for his resignation for his handling of that case. Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz says he has proof that former President Obama personally asked the FBI to investigate someone on behalf of George Soros, the liberal billionaire mega donor. There was a lot of White House control of the Justice Department during the Kennedy administration, and I don't think we saw very many liberal professors arguing against that, Dershowitz said in an interview with uh, Breitbart News that aired Sunday on Sirius XM. I have some information as well about the Obama administration, which will be disclosed in a lawsuit at some point, but I'm not prepared to disclose it now about how President Obama personally asked the FBI to investigate somebody on behalf of Soros, who was a close ally of his, end quote. Well, Dershowitz rather, did not say specifically who the target might have been. His claim comes as Barr, who has maintained that Trump never personally intervened in a criminal matter, has been hit by a letter reportedly signed by over 2,000 former Department of Justice officials organized by a left-wing group demanding his resignation. In recent days, Barr has, Barr has openly asked the president to stop tweeting about ongoing Justice Department matters. In an interview on Hannity on Monday, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham slammed Bob Barr, uh, his critics saying they have a political agenda separate from upholding the rule of law. And the Boy Scouts of America have filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy early on Tuesday after decades of sexual abuse claims within one of the country's largest youth organizations. The move uh, filed in Delaware Bankruptcy Court halts the hundreds of suits the BSA is facing that allege sexual misconduct by people within the 110-year-old organization over the years. Sexual abuse settlements had reportedly strained the Boy Scouts' uh, finances with states passing laws last year so that victims from long ago 
uh, abuse can sue for damages. And Denny Hamlin has emerged victorious at the Daytona 500 Monday night, winning the iconic NASCAR race for the third time. But it was overshadowed by a string of frightening crashes, including a fiery wreck that sent Ryan Newman to the hospital. Newman flipped several times. His car ultimately crossed the finish line, engulfed in flames. Fortunately, his injuries were not life-threatening, although serious, according to NASCAR executive Vice President Steve O'Donnell, who read a statement from Roush Fenway Racing Monday night. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue to take a look at some of the headlines of the day. We'll also look at what happened in history right about this time. All of that and more, we'll talk with Phil Waldrop, author of Beyond Betrayal, later in the program as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 21 minutes after... Um, Four o'clock. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Phil Waldrop. He's the author of Beyond Betrayal, Overcome Past Hurts and Begin to Trust Again. The book is published by Harvest House. Also, in the five o'clock hour, we will announce Gospel Sing Live 2020. We'll let you know who's coming, when, where, and all of that. So stick around for the big news coming up later. Well, um, Michael Bloomberg, who's been labeled racially insensitive and an elite, is um, making the debate stage facing uh, Democrat rivals for the first time. That'll be in tomorrow's debate. And his funding network of climate lawyers inside the uh, inside state AG offices is raising the alarm from many, not only of his opponents, opponents, but others as well. A reporter who caught Bill Clinton and Loretta Lynch in their um, tarmac meeting says there's much that doesn't add up. And apparently there's some new disclosure on that. Democrat senators reportedly held secret meeting in Munich with Iranian foreign minister Zaved Zarif. That uh, certainly has raised some eyebrows. Jeff Bezos has committed $10 billion to fight climate change or climate alarmists. Uh, And Apple says the coronavirus will stunt its quarterly earnings. Uh, the first nuclear reactor in an Arab nation was cleared to begin operation uh, just days ago as well. Well, on this day in history in 1930, photographic evidence of Pluto, now designated a dwarf planet, is discovered by Clyde Tomba of Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, 1943 on this day, Madam Chiang Kai-shek, wife of the Chinese leader, addresses members of the Senate and then the House, becoming the first Chinese national to address both houses of the U.S. Congress. On this day in history, 1970, the Chicago 7 defendants are found not guilty of conspiring to incite riots in the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Five are convicted of violating the Anti-Riot Act of 1968. Those convictions would be um, reversed at a later date. On this day in history, 1972, the California Supreme Court strikes down the state's death penalty. And 1977, the space shuttle prototype Enterprise, sitting atop a Boeing 747, goes on its debut flight above Edwards Air Force Base in California. On this day in history, 1988, Anthony M. Kennedy is sworn in as an associate justice to the U.S. Supreme Court. And 1997, astronauts on the space shuttle Discovery complete their tune-up of the Hubble Space Telescope after 33 hours of spacewalking. The Hubble is then released using the shuttle's crane. And finally, on this day, 2018, Black Panther, the Marvel superhero film from the Walt Disney Company, exceeds expectations to take in $192 million during its debut weekend in the U.S. and in Canadian 
theaters. Well, Bernie Sanders apparently leads all Democrats in a two-man race. People tend to opine that Bernie would face would fade if the so-called moderates didn't split the vote, but it turns out he beats them all one-on-one. And uh, Joe Biden is now admitting that they, the Obama administration, were the ones who actually locked kids in cages, qualifying uh, the practice saying we kept them safe. Well, Univision anchor George Ramos cornered Biden on Friday, telling him at the debate in Houston, you said that during the Obama administration, and I quote, we did lock people in cages, but you actually did not in the same numbers as the Trump administration, but you did. We found a picture of an eight-year-old boy from Honduras. I spoke with the photographer. But again, Biden justified the practice at the time. We kept them safe. Um, another uh, past statement from Mr. Bloomberg shows a troubling side of the former mayor in New York, and that will very likely be featured in the debate tomorrow. We should deny old people cancer treatment, he apparently said back in 2011. And uh, the story notes uh, that California law is decriminalizing theft leads to more theft. The law raised the value of the amount of merchandise someone could steal while still only being charged with a misdemeanor to nearly $1,000. So how'd that turn out? Well, they've now recorded multiple years of steadily increasing organized robbery just in smaller doses. Well, President Trump issued a, a spree of clemency decisions on Tuesday for high-profile figures, most notably commuting the sentence of former Democratic Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich, who was convicted for attempting to sell Barack Obama's vacant Senate seat when he was elected president. Now, when you have a, a sentence commuted, that means he is still a felon, but he does not have to serve any more of the time he was given. The president confirmed to reporters that he's granted clemency for the ex-governor, calling his sentence ridiculous. He'll be able to go back home with his family after serving eight years in jail. Trump also announced he pardoned financier, and this is a pardon as opposed to a commutation, financier Michael Milken, who pled guilty for violating U.S. securities laws. Further, the president confirmed that he has pardoned former New York City Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick, who was sentenced on tax fraud charges in 2010. It comes on the same day the White House announced uh, Trump granted a full pardon to former San Francisco 49ers owner Edward DiPartolo uh, Jr., who was convicted of failing to report a bribe to the former governor of Louisiana when he pled guilty in 1998. Blagojevich was convicted in 2010 on corruption charges and sentenced to 14 years in federal prison, a sentence he's been serving in a federal prison in Littleton, Colorado. President Trump was considering a commutation for Blagojevich last year, but plans were put on hold amid worries over pushback. Many people disagreed with the sentence, he said to reporters uh, today, before turning to two individuals he bashed during his time in office. He's a Democrat. He's not a Republican. It was a prosecution by the same people, James Comey, Patrick Fitzgerald, the same group. The president also expressed sympathy for the former Illinois governor's children. Very far from his children, Trump said, they rarely get to see their father outside of an orange uniform. I saw that and I um, did commute the sentence. Of course, that's true of many who have been convicted of crimes and are serving in federal prison. The president sounded off on the harshness of Blagojevich's sentence, comments that come as he also complained about the prosecution of GOP operative Roger Stone in connection with the Russia probe. At this point, the um, sentence, uh, or rather the uh, the charges, uh, may be of less significance than uh, the sentence and the jurors who are responsible for 
uh, his being found guilty, the judge will very likely on um, some point, I believe maybe as early as Thursday of this week, will have to revisit that. Blagojevich, who hails from a state with long history of pay-to-play schemes, was one of four out of seven consecutive Illinois governors to be sent to prison. His immediate predecessor, George Ryan, was convicted of racketeering for his actions as governor and secretary of state. He was convicted of political corruption just months after he appeared on the president's reality TV show, Celebrity Apprentice. I won't go on with these uh, pardons and commutations. But Bernie Sanders uh, rallied thousands of supporters in Washington state three weeks ahead of this presidential primary, calling the grassroots movement that led to his win in the state's 2016 caucuses to continue through the broader primary that takes place on the 10th of March. We may not have billions of dollars to throw around, but we have hundreds of thousands of people in every state in this country knocking on doors, he said. And that's why we're going to win here in Washington and why we're going to win all over the country, end quote. Supporters packed the Tacoma Dome and chanted Sanders' name as he appeared on stage after being introduced by U.S. Representative Pamela Jayapal, a Seattle Democrat who is chairing his uh, Washington state campaign. The Tacoma Dome holds about 23,000 people, and the campaign said there were 17,000 of them in attendance. Also speaking at the rally was actor Tim Robbins, who told the crowd Bernie Sanders is the one who can unite us. Sanders told the crowd that he believes President Donald Trump can be defeated because there are fundamental problems in this country that must be addressed. He cited income inequality, student debt, and health care. He also called out fellow Democratic candidate and billionaire, former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg, who has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising, saying we are a democracy, not an oligarchy. You're not going to buy this election. Well, the Vermont senator's visit came on the heels of his win in the New Hampshire primary and just three weeks ahead of Democrats casting their ballots in the state presidential primary. The state party will use the primary for the first time to allocate delegates to candidates with 89 delegates to be awarded based on the results. Supporters lined up hours ahead of the evening rally. Um, Bernie has a movement behind him, they said, and they attended 17,000 strong. Meanwhile, Michael Bloomberg will be on the debate stage on Wednesday night in Las Vegas, and he made it just under the wire. The former New York City mayor and 2020 presidential candidate qualified for the Nevada Democratic presidential primary debate at the last minute, notching 19 percent support. In a Marist NewsHour and NPR PBS poll, the fourth national poll to put him above the 10 percent mark since January 15th. That means the billionaire who has spent more than four hundred million dollars of his fortune on advertising meets the polling threshold set by the DNC for the debate. He'll be on the debate stage. His campaign confirmed in a statement. Up next, we're going to talk about betrayal. How to get past it. Beyond betrayal, overcome past hurts and begin to trust again with Phil Waldrop. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. 37 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the truth is, acts of betrayal have the power to violate our sense of trust and threaten to dismantle our faith in one another and even faith in God. Well, according to the John Hopkins Hospital, harboring these feelings can contribute to a myriad of physical burdens like depression and heart disease and diabetes. Forgiveness and healing, which we are commanded to engage in, 
often take a lifetime, but they don't have to. Well, in his new book, Beyond Betrayal, Overcome Past Hurts and Begin to Trust Again, my next guest, author Phil Waldrop, he shares his experience with betrayal and guides readers on their healing journey to overcome feelings of resentment and discover a life of health and healing and wholeness. I know it might sound impossible given the gravity of the betrayal that you might have experienced, but stay with us. Um, for the next um, several years, Phil walked through the feelings of betrayal when he experienced a, uh, and we'll talk about this a bit uh, a bit later, the betrayal of a close friend. He searched for hope and healing. He found it. And in his book, which was inspired by his own experience and beyond betrayal, he uh, uh, helps readers process their feelings using his personal and other experiences coupled with biblical wisdom to point them to a brighter tomorrow. Now, Phil Waldrop is the founder and CEO of Phil Waldrop Ministries and the wildly popular Women of Joy, a gridiron and uh, celebrators conferences. Uh, his vision to um, speak encouragement into the lives of people, unite powerful Bible teachers and speakers, now inspires nearly 60,000 annual attendees. He's also author of the acclaimed parenting book, Reaching Your Prodigal. He joins us today to talk about uh, his book, really helpful if you are struggling with having been betrayed, beyond betrayal, overcome past hurts and become and begin rather to trust again. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm just honored to be on with you. Well, thank you so much. Betrayal is one of those experiences that just goes to the very core. Can you talk a little bit about why, what it is about betrayal that can make it such a life-altering experience that also makes it so difficult to handle in a healthy and uh, biblically-inspired way? Well, it's true. You know, when we're betrayed, it really changes every relationship that we have, not just the relationship with the betrayer. Because the very nature of a betrayal means that we have had someone who took our love and our trust, and they have shattered it. And as a result, we find ourselves thinking, well, how can I have been so dumb not to see this person was going to betray me? So now we start thinking, well, maybe other people I know and other people who have proven I can trust them, maybe they're not what I think they are. So we begin to uh, have a filter that we're looking at every relationship. And because of one betrayal, if we're not careful, it begins to affect every relationship we have because now we've allowed doubt to enter in and we don't really trust people. And one of the reasons that I discovered that affected me was that it prevented me from having healthy, trusting, loving relationships with other people. So I tell people, if you've had someone betray you, it's very important that you process it biblically and, uh, and emotionally in a good way, because if you don't, it's going to cause you some harm later in your life. Now, this isn't just an academic pursuit for you. You experienced a betrayal that really um, inspired the book, but took you on a journey that you share with your readers. Tell us a little bit about your experience that prompted you to write on this topic. Well, you know, when I started my ministry uh, over, you know, nearly 40 years ago, I had someone who was my, one of my closest friends. 
He was someone that I would say I loved like a brother and was one of the few people that I would have sworn would never let me down. But that very person was a person who betrayed me. And it was a it was a rather unusual journey. And I, I go into detail in the book because it really was an investigation that took place that um, uh, was really didn't involve me and it didn't involve him. But they were trying to clear some people close to him and they were cleared. Nobody did anything illegal. But in the process, I was made aware that he was doing things that were not illegal, but they certainly were immoral and unethical. And I could not believe it. In fact, I came to his defense initially. But after I um, began to investigate, the reality hit, this is true, something I didn't even think he would be capable of doing. And it really hit home to me because... Um, at that point, when my reaction, some things I did right, some things I did wrong. But, you know, I got to tell you, it took me nearly 20 years to really get through that betrayal. And that's why I want to help people now, because there were so many mistakes that I made, many things that I did not know that I know now that it doesn't have to take someone 20 years to get through a betrayal they're experiencing. Let's talk about the cost of failing to do what you've just described. You've experienced a betrayal. It has cut you to the to the core and it's not dealt with properly. Uh, the person who has is responsible for the betrayal has probably moved on. But for the person who harbors that um, that fallout, if they don't deal with it, what's likely to happen to them? Well, there's always going to be an emotional reaction. If you've had a spouse who's been unfaithful or maybe you have a co-worker, like in my case, who has done something dishonest, maybe it was your business partner, they took the money and ran, or maybe it's just a friend who betrayed some very personal confidential information. Here's what I discovered. First of all, we all have an initial denial. It's a shock. No, it can't be true. But then reality hits. Yes, it is true. It's undeniable. Then we go through an anger stage. We get mad. Now, anger in itself is not bad. I think God gave us anger in certain situations for self-preservation and protection. In fact, Paul said in Ephesians that we could be angry and sin not. But we sometimes allow the anger to get the best of us. And in our anger, that allows us to begin to be bitter. And we become very bitter. And bitterness ultimately will lead to revenge. Now, when people hear the word revenge, they think we take physical revenge. You know, we go beat somebody up or something like that. And that's an extreme that sometimes happens. But for most of us, particularly as Christians, we don't act on that. We don't go physically harm someone or break the law, but we verbally attack them or we try to even the score. And as a result, we just get mired in this bitterness. And I don't know, everybody knows bitter people. I mean, you know, I sometimes have said bitterness is one of those things that when people have it, they may not realize it, but everybody else does. Yeah. It's a little bit like a person with bad breath, you know? They, everybody knows they have it, but then. And so that's how you can fall into the pitfalls if you don't process each one of those well. And we're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. In fact, we'll talk about trust and how do you regain that when you've experienced a, a, a betrayal. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book Beyond Betrayal, Overcome Past Hurts and Begin to Trust Again. My guest is Phil Waldrop, and the book is published by Harvest House. We'll be back in just a few moments, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Phil Waldrop, his book Beyond Betrayal, Overcome Past Hurts and Begin to Trust Again. 
as your subtitle suggests, trusting is obviously one of the major goals of this process. Um, And betrayal, of course, undermines this very um, idea of trust. Tell us a little bit about what you did in order to be able to trust again, because that that can be the biggest challenge. Well, it is because when trust has been, uh, you know, forfeited in a betrayal, it has to be rebuilt. Now, one of the things that I had to understand, uh, Georgine, that I think is very important for people to understand is I thought that if I forgave my betrayer, I had to restore the relationship immediately to the same level of trust I had before. And you know, it helped me one day when I realized in the Bible, we are told to forgive people, love people, and trust God. But nowhere in the Bible are we told to trust people, because trust is not something I give to you, it is something you earn. And what I discovered was two things. First of all, I could not allow the betrayal of one person to shatter the trust of other people. So I made a list. And on one side, I put the name of the betrayer along with some other people who had betrayed me as well. And on the right side, I put the names of people who had never betrayed me. And that that list was much, much longer. And I decided I wasn't going to let the people on the left destroy the people on the right. So you don't allow the lack of trust of one person to prevent the trust of others. But then I also had to realize that if the betrayer wanted to restore the relationship, they had to be willing to be accountable and to be an open book. Now, in my particular case, initially the betrayer wanted that, but ultimately he turned back to the same immoral behavior that he was doing. And so when people want to say, well, you know, I want to forgive, but I don't know if I can trust them. I got to tell you, that's okay. You can forgive a person and yet not trust them because trust is something that has to be earned. So don't beat yourself up because you're not trusting at the same level. They have to be an open book. They have to be willing to be accountable. And if they're not, then you have to move on and say, you know, this relationship is not ever going to be where it was. But there can be a relationship, just not one of the trust that you once had? Well, yes, I think and it depends on the betrayer, because sometimes when a betrayer betrays you, they really didn't value the relationship to start with. But then there's other times, for example, when a spouse has been unfaithful, when they really are repentant and they're very broken and they want the relationship restored. But they have to be an open book and they have to be willing. But I think it's important for people who have been betrayed not to try to force the relationship to immediately be back where it was. Because if the relationship is going to be built, rebuilt, it takes time. You mentioned earlier that um, it is appropriate under certain conditions or under certain circumstances to express anger. What are some healthy ways to express anger when one has experienced a serious betrayal? Well, a lot of times when we get angry, we act on our anger, either physically or verbally. And I'll tell you one of the things that I did that helped me express my anger in a healthy way that did not damage other relationships. I took out paper and I wrote on a piece of paper exactly what I was thinking and what I wanted to say and exactly how I felt. It allowed me to express it. It allowed me to verbalize it. But then in most cases, I shredded it or I destroyed it. Now, I did save some of my notes from that period of time. 
But the times that I really just let my anger go, I did it on paper. Now, the reason why that's valuable, I think, is because I did not harm any other relationship in the process. So you can be angry, you can be mad, and that's one of the ways that I found to do it. Another one was get out and do something. You know, if you like to, you know, if you like to run, get out and run. If you like to garden, get out and garden. Do something actively and take your anger out on, you know, objects rather than people. But whatever you do, make sure you don't uh, you don't hurt people. There's there's an old saying, and I don't know who originated. It did not originate with me, but it says if you do not heal what hurts you or, or what cuts you, you're going to bleed on people who did not cut you. Hmm. And so you don't want to hurt other people if you're trying to express your anger. So do it on paper. Don't do it verbally. Yeah, that's good. You point out in the book that Jesus was the victim of the ultimate act of betrayal uh, by Judas, who had been uh, his friend for for three years. Uh, talk about how he responded to Judas and what we can learn from his response in dealing with uh, betrayal that we have experienced. Well, you know, when Jesus was betrayed by Judas, you got to remember the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning, of course, that Judas was going to betray him. And yet he still, in the midst of that, did not stop loving other people. In fact, if you remember, the other disciples ran off and left Jesus, but Jesus did not stop loving people. And the one thing I think that happens whenever we're betrayed is we have a tendency to build a wall around our heart. We don't want to let pain in, which means we don't let people in, which means we don't let love in. And that is a very isolated and lonely place to be. And the example of Jesus, because remember, Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, even the feet of Judas, after he knew Judas had betrayed him. And even in that moment, even though I have to tell people, I'm not sure I could have done that. But Jesus did that. He demonstrated to us that we don't isolate ourselves, but we keep loving people even when we've been hurt. Doesn't mean we have to trust them. Doesn't even mean we have to want to be around them. But we keep loving other people in the midst of our hurt. Don't shut people out. That's the thing I think Jesus demonstrates for us. Well, in fact, you write about the fact that oftentimes when people have been betrayed or they're dealing with resentment, the most common way that they react to that is by isolating themselves. And it's not a good idea. It's not healthy for them or certainly for uh, for others as well. Well, it's not because, you know, we were designed by God for relationships. I tell people if God did not want us to have relationships and isolation was a good thing, then he would have made millions of little islands in the ocean and gave every one of us our own island. No, he didn't design us for isolation. He designed us for relationships. And one of the fastest way to get through a betrayal, I think, is to allow people to be in your life, people that have proven you can trust them, people that proven they love you and have your best interests, and allow those people to be in your life still. Don't isolate yourself and shut out people who love you. Mm. The other thing that you mentioned early in our conversation is the, the temptation to look at the incident, the individual who betrayed you, and then start to really question whether or not others are also betraying you and you just are are unaware of it. And um, being suspicious about the people that have been uh, faithful friends and have um, been part of our lives for a long time. How do you deal with that transfer of uh, guilt, if you will, uh, for those who have not betrayed us, but out of fear that we might be uh, on the verge of experiencing betrayal again? 
Well, and I have to be honest uh, and tell people, you know, there may be another person who betrays you. I can't promise you you're never going to be betrayed again. I think it's the human sinful nature of selfishness that many times people will act selfishly. But at the same time, what I think we all need is to have people in our life who can speak into our life. It may be a really close friend who has proven through the years that you can trust them. It might be in a counseling environment with a counselor who helps you process it. But let people speak into your life because if people have permission and they have your best interest, they can let you see that you're becoming isolated and to say, hey, look, you need to get out, you need to be involved, you need to open up. Now, it takes a while. I mean, when you're hurt, it takes a while to be able to do that. But bring people in. Don't build a wall around your heart to keep people out. Are there some scriptures that you found especially encouraging and helpful in moving beyond betrayal? There, you know, there were. You know, I remind people that the book of Psalms, which we think is a book of uh, songs and a hymn book, But it is also, I think, David's journal. And David expresses many times exactly how he felt. I mean, in Psalm 41, he's talking about people who have turned against him. Probably his own son, Absalom, was in mind. And in verse 9, he had reference to his trusted friend who ate bread with him, which probably was one of his trusted counselors that he had when he was king. But Psalms like that spoke to me because it let me know I wasn't the only one alone. Mm -hmm. And if King David uh, was experiencing it, then I could too. And I was also led to read scriptures that reminded me of God's love for me. Because, you know, God will never betray you. You may think at times he has, but believe me, God will never betray you. And so when I read about his love and about being fearfully and wonderfully made and accepted into his beloved, it reminded me that even if a betrayer doesn't put much value on me, God still loves me and values me just like he loves and values every person who's been betrayed. Once again, the book is titled Beyond Betrayal, Overcome Past Hurts and Begin to Trust Again. Phil Waldrop, thank you so much for talking with us. Well, thank you, and it's been my joy to be with you. Thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. And when we return, big announcement, Gospel Sing 2020. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. Seven minutes after five o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to take a moment to make an announcement. You might recall last summer uh, we had our first gospel sing live. Now, with me here in the studio here at KPDQ is the host of Gospel Sing, the longest running program on KPDQ featuring Southern gospel music, Clark Hilton. He and I and some others from the station had the opportunity this last summer to go to Salem's Waterfront Park and enjoy the first gospel sing live. Well, there's going to be a second in what we hope will become a tradition here in uh, in this part of the country, Gospel Sing Live 2020. And I wanted to announce today who the featured artist will be. Now, I don't know if you want to make that announcement, Clark, if you want me to. I'll be playing some gospel songs on my ukulele. There you go. <laughs> no. Not really. Uh, uh, not well, quite sure what to say about that. Yeah. You can say, no, I'm not buying a ticket to that. <laughs> but for whom should they buy a ticket? Do you want me to tell them? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, we are going to have Mark Lowry 
coming here. Yay! Well, to Salem in uh, August. I believe the date is the 14th. That's August be 14th. Mm-hmm. A Friday night again at uh, Salem's Riverfront Park. And he is going to be joined by special guest Greater Vision, which has been around quite a while and uh, has some great music out. We play them a lot. We play both artists quite a bit on the gospel sing, and Greater Vision actually has a new album out, too. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, that's all coming up, as Clark said, Friday, August the 14th at Salem Riverfront Park. It's, uh, it's a beautiful venue. It's the same uh, location that we have um, Fish Fest. So Friday night, the 14th, we are encouraging you to bring your family and friends, your church group, enjoy listening to live Southern gospel music outside of this wonderful venue. Tickets are going to go on sale uh, to the general public on Saturday, but we have a special pre-sale going on right now for members of our e-club. And you can log on to uh, get log on to kpdq.com to get your tickets or use the KPDQ mobile app and uh, you can purchase your well, tickets. Actually, early. you want to log into the e-club at KPDQ or the uh, or the KPDQ mobile app. Yes. You want to sign up or if you've already signed up, uh, yes. log into that. Yes, you do. That is so correct, Clark. I couldn't have said it better. No, literally, I could not have said it better. (laughs) But once again, mark your calendar, Friday, August 14th, Salem Riverfront Park. We had such a great time this last year uh, with the uh, artists, and the weather was beautiful. The venue is beautiful. The sound was great. People um, had opportunity to just spread out, sit wherever you want to, whether that's in a lawn chair or the... Uh, chairs that uh, we have set up, and it was just a wonderful evening. The artists, food vendors, food vendors. Mm-hmm. The artists mingled with the crowd, and you had an opportunity, they did. to yeah, to have your yeah. CDs signed and all that kind of stuff. You'll hear more about that as we get closer to the date. But we wanted to give you the heads up for um, August the fourteenth. Fourteenth. Mark Lowry and Greater Vision. Yeah. So there you have it. The announcement has been made. All right. We've been talking about uh, the debate that's coming up tomorrow for. Uh, those who are seeking the Democrat Party nomination to run against President Trump in this upcoming election. And yes, it's racing toward us uh, November of this year. Uh, and that debate will uh, follow uh, primaries and caucuses and so on. Well, one of the big days that's going to um, really whittle down the numbers on the uh, Democratic presidential lineup of candidates is Super Tuesday. There's no Democratic presidential primary candidate that's mounting an overwhelming lead in the delegate race, although uh, we do have a leader, apparently, um, thus far. That can all change. But Super Tuesday, it's poised to play an even bigger role in the 2020 presidential election than it's had in the past. It started out, of course, with the botched Iowa caucuses, then New Hampshire, on to uh, Nevada, and so on. With both California and Texas, the nation's two most populous states holding primaries on the 3rd of March, around 40 percent of Americans are going to be voting on Super Tuesday. So that may tell the tale for those who are able to survive in this uh, bid for the Democrat Party nomination. Well, given the importance of Super Tuesday primaries and the role that these races are going to play in deciding who goes up against President Trump in November's general election, a list of some of the states holding the vote on the 3rd uh, might be somewhat help, um, helpful. Uh, how many delegates are up for grabs with each of them? You've got Alabama. That state holds an open primary with 61 delegates being awarded again on March the 3rd. American Samoa, the territory holds an open caucus with the territory award. 11 delegates, of which six are pledged delegates allocated to the on the basis, rather, of the results of the caucuses. You've got Arkansas. That state holds uh, an open primary with 36 delegates. California, that state holds a semi-closed primary, which means only Democrats and unaffiliated voters can cast a ballot. 
uh, with the 494 delegates being awarded on a proportional basis. So that's significant. Colorado state holds a semi-closed primary, meaning only Democrats and unaffiliated voters can cast a ballot with an 80 delegate uh, lineup there. Um, Maine, the state holds a closed primary. That means only Democrats can cast a ballot. 32 delegates there. Massachusetts holds a semi-closed primary. 114 delegates. Um, Minnesota, the state holds an open primary with 91 delegates being awarded on a proportional basis. Uh, North Carolina, the state holds a semi-closed primary, 122 delegates being awarded on a proportional basis. Oklahoma, they have a semi-closed primary, 42 delegates being awarded. Tennessee, the state holds an open primary, 73 delegates. Texas, another big one, they hold an open primary with 261 delegates being awarded on a proportional basis. You've got Utah with 35 delegates, they hold an open primary. Vermont, 24 delegates, they hold an open primary. And Virginia, all also holding an open primary with 124 delegates being uh, awarded. Now, um, Democrats abroad, they also have an open primary in which any U.S. citizen living abroad who is a member of the Democrats abroad can participate. So you have to be a member of that particular group. Uh, living abroad is not sufficient. They have 17 delegates that are being awarded on a, awarded rather on a proportional basis. So all of that is coming up on March the 3rd. Now today, of course, is the 18th. So it's not too far off. We've got a couple of, um, got a caucus and a primary in between. But when it comes to winnowing down who's going to uh, be the last man or woman standing, um, Super Tuesday does tell much of that tale. So we're looking forward to the debate to Tomorrow, in which we'll have Michael Bloomberg for the first time facing off with Democrat rivals and then uh, the caucus and primaries to follow and Super Tuesday, which will be a um, which will be a big occasion for Democrats seeking to narrow down the list to one who will face off with President Trump in November. So there you have it. All right. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, um, we're going to talk about House Democrats who are pondering impeaching the president again. We'll tell you what those grounds might be, as well as um, Bloomberg's mercenaries. That's what they're being called. The billionaire Democrat is funding a network of climate lawyers inside state um, attorneys general's offices. So we'll tell you more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are on a very brief window in which there's no major investigation going on, but that could all change very quickly. On the day the Senate acquitted President Trump in his impeachment trial, a headline in The Atlantic stated that a second impeachment could be America's only hope. In fact, it's almost a certainty if President Trump were to be reelected. Less than a month later, Representative Adam Schiff is denouncing Trump again, saying that it would be a blatant abuse of power if the president has in fact intervened to reverse the recommendations of career prosecutors at the Department of Justice. He led the impeachment efforts as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and later as the head of the seven impeachment managers in the Senate trial. Well, the Democrat from California condemned as an abuse of power the president's tweet about supporter Roger Stone's impending sentencing in federal court. Abuse of power was one of the House's uh, two articles of impeachment against the, uh, the president in the Ukraine matter, although it was abuse of um, of uh, power and obstruction of Congress. Adam Schiff seems to believe everything Trump does is an abuse of power. That's a quote from Kurt Levy, a constitutional lawyer and the president of the Committee for Justice. Uh, Democrats will be smart enough not to impeach him again for the same charge, Levy said. But if we take Schiff at his word, which might be a mistake, 
even if it was a legitimate acquittal, if he thinks the Senate trial was a sham, that would give Democrats even more standing in their minds to impeach again. Well, I'm not sure the American people are ready for that, but there is an election coming up in November in which uh, at which time they'll have an opportunity to impeach the president by uh, declining to send him back to Washington or Uh, Give him another four years. Only an election will tell. Well, a program funded by 2020 presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg is paying the salaries of lawyers who are uh, farmed out to liberal state attorneys general offices to pursue climate based litigation. A compact critics say amounts to a Bloomberg buying state law enforcement employees to advance his preferred political agenda. Well, the arrangement, which currently pays the salaries of special assistant attorneys general or SAGs in 10 Democratic AG offices, is drawing some new scrutiny now that he's running for president. The New York University School of Law's State Energy and Environmental Impact Center, which was started in 2017 with $5.6 million from Bloomberg's nonprofit, hires mid-career lawyers as research fellows before providing them a state, uh, rather two state AGs, where they assist in pursuing progressive policy goals through the courts. This is a fundamental question of ethics and who's running our government. That's a quote from West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey, one of a handful of Republican attorneys general who have raised concern about the um, concerns rather about the Bloomberg funded program. When you actually get to place someone in under a specific agenda and then pay them and they're within the office, that starts to uh, call into question whether they are multiple masters within an attorney general office, and that starts to really stink, end quote. Well, Republican Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill also says he's concerned about how Bloomberg philanthropies, uh, NYU and state AG offices are cooperating. What's problematic is the arrangement through which a private organization or individual can promote an overtly political agenda by paying the salaries of government employees. According to its website, the NYU State Impact Center currently has attorneys placed in the AG offices for Washington, D.C., for Delaware, Connecticut, Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland, Minnesota, New Mexico, New York, and right here in Oregon. The attorney general running each of those offices is a Democrat. Well, the NYU Center first announced uh, in an August 2017 press Uh, Press release noting that it was boosted with funding from Bloomberg Philanthropies, the informal name for Bloomberg Family Foundation. According to the foundation's IRS uh, 990 from 2017, the $5.6 million came in the form of one $2.8 million payment in 2017 and another to follow in 2018. The Bloomberg Family Foundation's 990 forms are not available for 2018 or 2019, so it's not clear whether Bloomberg continued to fund the State Impact Center last year or uh, if he has yet in um, 2020. Well, in an August uh, email from 2017 to state attorneys general, State Impact Center executive director, a former member of the Clinton and Obama administrations, laid out the qualifications for the AGs hoping to hire SAGs from that program. The opportunity to potentially hire an NYU fellow is open to all state attorneys general uh, who demonstrate a need and commitment to defending environmental values and advancing progressive clean energy, climate change, and environmental legal positions. Well, that email, along with other documents reviewed, um, uh, obtained by uh, energy policy advocates, 
uh, continues, state attorneys general should describe that particular scope of needs within their offices related to the advancement and defense of progressive clean energy, climate change and environmental matters. According to Washington based attorney Chris Horner, who worked with energy policy advocates on public records requests into the state's impact center activities, the group's self-declared nonpartisan label is a smokescreen, allowing it to pursue ideologically motivated progressive goals with SAG's he labeled mercenaries. Nonprofit is a, uh, in a nonpartisan rather in that you need just promise to use the mercenaries to advance progressive climate legal positions. He said so partisan perish the thought. It's merely ideological. Well, both publicly and in correspondence, the State Impact Center and those who work with it express hostility toward the Trump administration. The State Impact Center's website celebrates the fact state AGs have taken at least 300 legal actions against the president and the administration since his inauguration. So nonpartisan, not exactly. Additionally, Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch, who was uh, one of the most involved AGs during the program's early stages and was communicating regularly with State Impact Center officials beginning in July of 2017 explicitly said he was using his state impact center attorneys, whom he referred to as Bloomberg fellows, to battle the Trump administration. It turns out that our first Bloomberg fellow, Josh Siegel, was a student of yours at Harvard. He's a big fan, Frosch wrote in January of 2018 in an email to Heather Gerken, now a Yale Law School professor. We're looking to fill a second position. Do you know anyone five to ten years out of school who would be interested in saving the planet from the pedestrians of Trump's EPA chief, Scott Pruitt, and Trump Interior Secretary, Ryan Zinke? So political, ideological... Uh, whether or not there's a conflict of interest with um, Bloomberg, all of this now being looked at more closely, given his position as a candidate. And conservative lawmakers have decided to become proactive about the transgender epidemic infiltrating the nation's youth. According to Nicole Russell, in the past couple of months, Republican lawmakers in at least nine states have introduced legislation to ban medical providers from helping boys and girls undergo a medical transition via surgery and or hormone replacement therapy before they turn 18. Now, some of the bills would make it a felony to prescribe hormones or perform related surgeries for minors. In South Dakota, State Representative Fred Deutsch, Republican, spearheaded the effort. The South Dakota legislature passed its version of the bill just this month. Governor Kristi Noem, also a Republican, signs the bill into law. Doctors who offer, or rather if she does, doctors who offer medical transitions in the form of hormone replacements or surgery to children under 16 could receive a one-year jail sentence or a hefty fine. Colorado, West Virginia, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Missouri, Florida, Illinois, and Kentucky all have similar provisions in the works, although the details vary. In a tweet, Deutsch said the world is upside down, that protecting children from sterilization and mutilization or mutilation rather is causing a firestorm. In a statement to USA Today, he said every child in South Dakota should be protected from dangerous drugs and procedures. The solution for children's identification with the opposite sex isn't to poison their bodies with mega doses of the wrong hormones to chemically or surgically castrate and sterilize them or to remove healthy breasts and reproductive organs. Sex reassignment surgery, a phrase the LGBTQ lobby hijacked and changed to gender reassignment surgery, a subtle but important difference, has had enough success and failure for lawmakers on both sides of the political aisle to use to their advantage. Or so they think. 
Well, a USA Today article, which is rather thorough, paints GOP lawmakers as interventionists who suddenly want to get involved in people's personal lives. It cites professional who voice disdain for lawmakers who would keep today's youth from living as their feelings dictate. These lawmakers face an uphill battle because of backlash in public relations, reputable medical groups such as the American Medical Association and American Academy of Children and uh, Adolescent Psychiatry have come out in favor of providing surgical and hormonal replacement transitions as appropriate treatment for children struggling with gender dysphoria. Despite little evidence, it cures the dysphoria or what the long-term impacts might be. In fact, while little um, evidence exists either for or against medical transition, because it's such a new phenomenon, statistics show that some people who transition experience regret. Well, conservative lawmakers who propose these bills come from a place of education combined with empathy and caution. And because this is optional surgery and not a life or death medical procedure, such as neurosurgery following a stroke, lawmakers propose banning the surgery for teenagers to err on the side of safety. We'll continue to follow that story to see what happens next. 32 minutes after um, five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Boy Scouts of America filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection early, uh, earlier today after decades of sexual abuse claims within one of the country's largest youth organizations. Now, the petition filed in Delaware Bankruptcy Court halts the hundreds of lawsuits that the Boy Scouts of America is facing that allege sexual misconduct by people within the 110-year-old organization over the years. Sexual abuse uh, settlements had reported strained um, the Boy Scout finances with states passing laws last year, so victims for from as long ago uh, as uh, decades uh, could sue for damages. One um, attorney whose firm is representing some 300 victims in New York as last uh, as of last April said the bankruptcy would be bigger in scale than any other sex abuse bankruptcy. You're talking about thousands of perpetrators, the Seattle-based lawyer Michael Fow. Uh, who has represented more than 300 victims in 34 states, told the New York Daily News. You're talking about tens of thousands of victims. This will be the largest the country has ever seen and likely one of the largest corporate bankruptcies. The national organization said they made the move to fairly compensate victims harmed during their times in scouting and to keep the 100-year-old nonprofit running for years to come. A victim's compensation trust will reportedly uh, be set up during the bankruptcy process. Uh, The BSA cares deeply about all victims of abuse and sincerely apologizes to anyone who was harmed during their time in scouting. We are outraged that there have been uh, times when individuals took advantage of our program to harm innocent children. The president and chief executive officer of Boy Scouts of America, Roger Mosby, uh, said of the bankruptcy filing, while we know nothing can undo the tragic abuse that victims suffer, we believe the Chapter 11 process with a proposed trust structure will provide equitable compensation to all victims while maintaining the BSA's important mission. Well, the Boy Scouts of America has issued an open letter to victims, which can be read online and will run as a full page ad in USA Today on the 19th. That's tomorrow, the 19th of February. Scouting programs will continue during the bankruptcy process and for many years to come. The organization says local councils are not filing for bankruptcy as they are legally separate and distinct organizations. The petition reportedly listed the Boy Scouts assets as between one billion and ten billion dollars and its liabilities at five hundred million to one billion dollars. 
Well, the author of The Secret on the Tarmac revealed new details on Monday about the secretly held 2016 meeting between former President Bill Clinton and Attorney General Loretta Lynch. Well, we knew something had uh, occurred that was a bit unusual. Uh, It was a planned meeting. It was not a coincidence. Journalist Christopher Sign uh, says about the explosive meeting that cast a negative light over the FBI's investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server while she was secretary of state. Well, at the time, then candidate Donald Trump criticized Bill Clinton via Twitter for potentially trying to interfere with the investigation. Well, Trump had publicly questioned the meeting at Phoenix's uh, Sky Harbor Airport after which Clinton and Lynch claimed the conversation centered around their grandchildren. The meeting occurred just days before the FBI decided it would not recommend criminal charges against Hillary Clinton. Does anybody really believe that Bill Clinton and the USAG talked only about grandkids and golf for 37 minutes in a plane on tarmac, Trump uh, asked via Twitter at the time. Well, Sign said uh, secrets on the tarmac details everything that they don't want you to know and everything they think you forgot. But Bill Clinton was on that plane for 20 minutes, and it wasn't just about golf, grandkids and Brexit. There's so much that doesn't add up. Now, whether or not the author of this book has any real insight or if this is just an an exercise in selling books, we don't know. But he said that his source, who was there, outlined that when Clinton arrived at the airport, he was waiting for Lynch. He then sat and waited in his car with a motorcade. His uh, Her air stars came down. Most of her staff gets off. He then gets on as the Secret Service and FBI are figuring out how in the world are we supposed to handle this? What are we supposed to do? Uh, sign, the author of the book, says. Well, as journalists, you have to ask yourself, why are people not delving into this? Why are we not looking into what exactly happened? Well, Sign said that Lynch in December of 2018 testified before the House Oversight Committee. She mentioned that Bill Clinton flattered her, talked about Eric Holder, talked about how things were going at justice, talked about her job performance, not this golf grandkids Brexit. Uh, Sign said that his family has received death threats for telling the story. The story isn't about right or left, Republican or Democrat, Sign says. It's about right and wrong and journalism. Well, in response, Bill Clinton said he was offended over the allegations of misconduct regarding the tarmac meeting. I thought you, um, you know, I uh, don't know whether I'm more offended that uh, they think I'm crooked or that they think I'm stupid, Clinton told investigators, according to a 2018 report released by Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz. So that book is about to be released. Yet another mystery, controversy, conflict, secret on the tarmac. How much information it actually contains remains to be seen, but the book will be released shortly. Well, the United Nations once again is proving its anti-Semitism and no other international dispute. There are hundreds of global conflicts, but the United States, United Nations rather, targets peaceful civilians or institutions. Certainly in no place does it work to destroy the businesses of non-combatants based on their ethnicity or religion, like in Israel. Well, the 112 companies on the U.N.'s list are run and staffed, no doubt, by people with diverse viewpoints, at least some of whom likely support the creation of a Palestinian state. All of them create jobs, products and services that foster cooperation. None of this matters to the U.N. The boycott divestment sanction campaign now supported by the U.N. is a coordinated international effort committed to the elimination of the Jewish state, bringing together dictators, theocrats, terrorist organizations, communists, the international community and at least one of Senator Bernie Sanders' top surrogates. 
Well, the movement targets Jews under the guise of anti-Zionism, which remains the predominant justification for violence, murder and hatred against Jews in Europe and in the Middle East. The United Nations, of course, has long been ahead of the curve in this effort from its 1975 infamous Resolution 3379, which determined that Zionism was a form of racism and racial discrimination, to its 2006 creation of the Human Rights Council. Current members include sparkling examples of tolerance like Afghanistan, Angola, Gutter, um, Somalia and Bangladesh. Well, even those with good faith criticism of Israel's actions in the West Bank could concede that the United Nations has shown the Jewish state is a highly curious amount of special attention and uh, uh, approbation. Well, since the unfortunate inception, the House, uh, the Human Rights Council has condemned Israel about as many times as uh, it has every other country in the world combined. According to the Washington Post, Israel's human rights record is discussed at literally every meeting of the Human Rights Council. In 2018, while the Bashar Assad regime was gassing its own women and children and thousands of civilians were dying in a vicious civil war, the Human Rights Council passed only two condemnations directed at the Syrian regime, but five directed at the Jewish state. Incidentally, Israel was uh, was delivering aid to refugees of that conflict at the time. The only other countries to receive even one condemnation in 2018 were South Sudan, Myanmar, Iran, and the slave state of North Korea. The United Nations has drafted so many anti-Israel resolutions that people have given up on entering them into Wikipedia. No other country has that oversees a minority population, populations who often have far stronger cases for autonomy, is afforded even a slither of the attention from the world. Not even the communist Chinese, which has imprisoned upwards of a million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in internment camps for re-education, will catch the attention of the alleged human rights campaigns and champions of the United Nations. Nor does the Palestinian Authority, which currently arrested the only Palestinian brave enough to attend the Trump administration's international peace-seeking economic conference in Bahrain, uh, which subsidized um, anti-Israeli terrorism with a martyr's fund, and which uh, doesn't even bother having elections. Rather, it gets big checks from the international community, often underwritten by the United States, to prop up its regime, which is often corrupt. What really irks the U.N., though, are Israelis' efforts at economic cooperation. U.N. Deputy Executive Director for Advocacy Bruno Stagno says the long-awaited release of the U.N. settlement business database should put all companies on notice to do business with illegal settlements is to aid the commission of war crimes. Hiring talented Palestinians for software engineering jobs at tech startups is um, aiding in the commission of war crimes. Allowing Palestinians to see Jews as co-workers rather than enemies is abiding uh, rather aiding in the commission of war crimes, again, according to the U.N., offering Palestinians work rather than keeping them in a perpetual state of agreement uh, and anger, as do the authoritarian leaders who reject one peace plan after the next from the comfort of their mansions, is aiding in the commission of war crimes, allowing them to work for international companies like Airbnb, Bookings.com, Expedia, Motorola is aiding uh, in the commission of war crimes. Well, it's a tragedy that those who work for the United Nations, people like Stagno, who'd rather uh, Palestinians remain victim in per- perpetuity than see a single Jewish person in the West Bank. But I suppose given the history there, it's not surprising. Now, speaking of history, the criminal trial for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will begin March 17th. Court officials announced Tuesday shaking up the final stretch of the um, a contentious election campaign and hurting the longtime Israeli leaders' hopes of forming a new government 
after the vote. We'll continue to follow that story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Now, if you've joined us in the latter part of this hour, I want to let you know and remind the rest of you that Gospel Sing Live is on the calendar. We're going to feature our second Gospel Sing Live on Friday, August the 14th at Salem Waterfront. Actually, it's Riverfront Park. And we wanted to announce this year's uh, artists, Mark Lowry and special guest, Greater Vision. That's coming up on the 14th of August. That's a Friday night at Salem Riverfront Park. 93.9 KPDQ presenting Gospel Sing Live 2.0. You can bring the family, friends, your church group, enjoy listening to live Southern gospel music outside. Tickets are going to go on sale um, to the public on Saturday, but we have a special pre-sale going on right now for members of our E-Club. So if you are a member of the E-Club or you would like to become a member, you can log on to a kpdq.com or the KPDQ mobile app, and you can purchase your tickets before anyone else can. And you can, you know, make a big deal out of it. Oh, I got my tickets so Wednesday ago when everyone else is clamoring on Saturday. So uh, again, coming up, Gospel Sing Live 2.0 this year featuring Mark Lowry and special guest Greater Vision. Friday, August the 14th at Salem Riverfront Park. Last year was our first Gospel Sing Live, and we had a great time. We would love for you to join us Uh, this year. So make note of it and purchase your tickets early and often. Taking a look at a couple of stories we didn't get a chance to cover. Top Democrats here in Oregon, as you might recall, the Oregon legislature is in session. They're going to slow down, they tell us, uh, slow down the cap and trade plan. That's their highest priority bill this session. House Speaker Tina Kotek announced this on Monday afternoon. Now, the fear is that Republicans are going to walk out a second time because uh, Republicans have argued that you are not giving sufficient time to this major piece of legislation and you're um, you're making it impossible for Oregonians to weigh in on it. As we discussed sometime earlier, they want to pass this as an emergency bill, which means that for two years you couldn't uh, challenge that through the ballot. Well, Tina Kotek said that she made the decision in consultation with Senate President Peter Courtney after House Republicans expressed the need to understand the bill better for their constituents. We're willing to have more conversations this week, she says, during a briefing with reporters. It's too critical for everyone to process. Well, last week, House Republicans complained that another greenhouse gas cap and trade bill, which members of both parties acknowledged was likely not the version that would move forward, was moved by Democrats to the House Rules Committee to keep it alive, despite the bill never having received a hearing. This is one of the Republicans' main complaints. Republicans on the House Committee on Energy and Environment um, exited before that vote, a move they characterized as stepping out, Uh, which left Democrats to vote on it. Senate Bill uh, 1530 has been scheduled for a possible vote in the Joint Committee on Ways and Means uh, this morning. I haven't had a chance to check to see if that happened. And that opens up the possibility it might have come up uh, for a floor vote on the Senate uh, floor by the end of the week. That also raised the possibility that Senate Republicans might once again walk out, stop the bill as they did in 2019 in the longer session. Well, the Budget Committee work session uh, was canceled early Monday afternoon for that reason. Well, Tina Kotek says that she now plans to have an exact copy of Senate Bill 1530 introduced by the House Rules Committee um, tomorrow. 
including any technical changes that a budget subcommittee might make during a scheduled work session later on Monday afternoon. Now, that would allow us then to have a public hearing so people can then submit testimony. It will also be an informational hearing for House lawmakers so they can learn details of the bill. Now, that's a very short time frame to understand a very complicated and expensive piece of legislation. But nonetheless, this is how she's describing slowing down. She went on to say there's been a lot of work on this bill, two and a half years worth. On Monday evening, House Republican leader Christine Drazen of Canby responded to Kotek's announcement with a written statement, which read, and I quote, Slowing down the pace allows us to work together to govern rather than simply substituting closed-door negotiations with special interests for a public process with elected officials. She went on to say, we now have an opportunity for our nonpartisan experts to take the time needed to analyze this bill, and I will be calling for leadership to allow additional hearings to ensure a thorough review and a fully transparent process for the citizens of Oregon. So her version of slowing down might take a little more time than that of Uh, Tina Kotek, but nonetheless, it's not going to be rushed through at the pace we had all been warned earlier. Also, 11 Oregon Republicans have um, fled in protest of a greenhouse gas emissions cap and trade bill. The legislature says such a bill would harm Oregonians, according to USA Today. Well, that movement um, created a certain level of frustration uh, by liberal policies, and some Oregon residents have petitioned to leave the state by moving the border with Idaho Westward, They wouldn't move. They just moved the border. Now, the movement secured initial approval from two counties and aims to get enough signatures to put the proposal on ballots in November, according to the group called Greater Idaho. Apparently, Oregonians who want to be Idahoans. Well, in the group, or rather, if they succeed, voters in southeast Oregon may see a question on whether their county should become part of Idaho by redrawing that border. Rural counties have become increasingly outraged by laws coming out of the Oregon legislature that threaten our livelihoods, our industries, our wallet, our gun rights, our values. That's a quote from Mike McCarter, one of the chief petitioners, in a news release. We've um, tried voting those legislators out, but rural Oregon is outnumbered and our voices are now ignored. This is our last resort. Now, Oregon Republican walkout um, was sort of the last straw for some of them. Uh, Democrats control the governor's office, the state legislature, and last year, Senate Republicans left the Capitol in protest of a bill on greenhouse gas emissions. The one we talked about a moment ago um, uh, is uh, being considered this time around. Well, Greater Idaho, Idaho rather, says it needs to collect about 2,400 signatures from Josephine County and about 3,000 from Douglas County in order to appear on the ballot. People here would prefer Idaho's conservative governance to the progressive liberal current Oregon governance Uh, says one of its chief spokesmen. Uh, Every time I um, look at the Facebook group, Greater Idaho, the group has gotten bigger. Well, of Oregon's 36 counties, only 14 in the Willamette Valley area would remain if the group had its way. Moving the border would require approval from the U.S. Congress as well as the Idaho and Oregon legislatures. Not sure about Idaho's legislature, who might welcome the Oregon counties, but Oregon's legislature, I think, would be somewhat reluctant. I mean, the revenue that goes with that secession, if you will. Secession in Virginia. Well, West Virginia Governor uh, Justice says that he'd welcome Virginia counties wanting to secede with open arms. Uh, The proposal to join Idaho isn't the first effort Oregonians have made to leave the state back in 1941. And no, I was not here then. Residents of southwestern Oregon tried to secede by creating a state of Jefferson with Northern Californians. The state of Jefferson didn't happen then. I think it's probably unlikely 
now. We'll see what happens. However, petitions are currently being circulated. Well, taking a look at uh, the calendar for the remainder of today's program or of this week's program, let's uh, take a longer view. Tomorrow, we're going to welcome India Partners into our studio. They are doing some significant work. I had the opportunity at the tail end of 2018 to visit uh, much of the work that they are doing. And because of the generosity of KPDQ listeners and other donors to India Partner, they are opening a new home for girls. And for me, that's absolutely thrilling because I have seen the work that they're doing. I've been in these houses. I've seen the and met with the people who are uh, leading these houses. I know what they look like. I know how they're conducted. And we'll talk more about that tomorrow. But India Partners is uh, calling upon KPDQ listeners once again to help them in uh, opening this new uh, home for girls. I uh, recall um, mentioning it at the time, but when I arrived at uh, these houses and was introduced as representing KPDQ listeners, first of all, they knew who I was, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. And they expressed gratitude like I've never experienced on these trips before. So we'll talk about all of that with our India Partners Radiothon. That's coming up tomorrow right here on the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blind for producing and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.